God, we are well aware that we can be listening to the preached word but not really hearing it. Help these words not to just penetrate the eardrum but penetrate the heart. Help us not to zone out but to zone in. Our fallen nature still sees sin as attractive, dazzling, eye-catching. Deliver us from the sugar of sin and its gall. Father, it's vital that you feed us today. It's essential that we behold the beauty of Christ. Do not allow us to leave here untouched, unaffected, unaltered by your word. Do work among us for the good of this church and the glory of your name. Father, help me to worship while I preach and help our people to worship while they listen. I pray that our church burns with such a white-hot passion for you that people will come just to watch us burn. We are grateful to have a talking God. Will you come now and speak to us? This is our corporate plea. Amen. We're coming down to the final stretch in the book of Revelation. This is our 23rd installment. We will finish the book next week. Revelation 21 deals with the new heaven and the new earth. Some of you have only heard the term new heaven and new earth since you've been at our church. You kind of thought when you die, you just go to live with God in the sky somewhere and you'll be there forever. But that elementary teaching of the afterlife neglects one of God's greatest promises. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. We will live under that new heaven and in that new earth. John is not introducing something new to the people of God. This is not a new teaching. This is an ancient teaching. 900 years earlier, Isaiah spoke about a time when God would bring a new heaven and a new earth. God's people have long anticipated its coming. I want to give you a theology of the new heaven and the new earth. I hope this exposition does three things for you. First, I hope it clears up some misconceptions you have about heaven. Like that you will be there forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. Heaven for you is temporary. New earth for you is eternal. You will check into heaven like you check into a hotel. It's not home. There is a checkout day. Second, I hope this exposition makes you long for heaven. For the right reasons. Sometimes when life gets tough, we think, I want to leave. I want to go to heaven. That yearning is really escapism. We just want to get away from here. Our desire for heaven is not really about heaven. It's about escaping the present. Or or maybe a a friend or family member dies and, and we think, I want to go be with them in heaven. Our desire for heaven then is not escapism, but simply reunion. We really desire that relationship back not necessarily heaven. 
So we have desires for heaven that aren't necessarily sinful. They just aren't ultimate. When we are finished today, I want you to long for heaven like you've never longed for anything else in your life. But I want you to long for it for the ultimate reason, not the lesser ones. Third, I hope this exposition makes you live differently tomorrow and every day that follows. This teaching on the new heaven and the new earth should make you parent differently, should make you work your job differently, should make you interact with your spouse differently, should make you view your singleness differently, should make you endure pain and suffering differently. Non-Christians, I'm hoping this sermon on heaven makes you repent and believe on Christ. You're probably used to sermons on hell trying to bring you to belief and repentance. But I'm flipping it. I'm planning for this sermon on heaven to make you fall on your knees in humble submission to Christ your King. Let's review. What are my goals for this exposition? One, I hope it clears up some misconceptions you have about heaven. Two, I hope it makes you long for heaven for the right reasons. Three, I hope it makes you live differently tomorrow and every day that follows. In order to reach those goals, I want to break down our text in this way. First, answering seven questions about the new heaven and the new earth. We have questions and the text has answers. Now, I, I'm not saying I will answer all the questions you have about the new heaven and the new earth. Like, will we still have to clip our toenails? Or will we still have to brush our teeth? But I will answer the vital questions, the important ones, the needed ones, the only ones according to Scripture that you must have answered before you go there. At the end of the sermon, I'll leave you with some resources to answer some of the more secondary questions about heaven. First, answering seven questions about the new earth, about the new heaven and the new earth. Secondly, taking two tours of the new heaven and the new earth. In verses 9 through 21, the angel takes the apostle John on a tour of heaven. When the angel finishes, he says, that's part one. Now it's time for the second tour. We will go on that same tour. We will tour the new heaven and the new earth before we go there. One, answering seven questions about the new heaven and the new earth. Taking two tours of the new heaven and the new earth. Then finally, going home with three ways. The new heaven and the new earth should impact your time under the old heaven and on the old earth. Teaching on the new earth should change how you live on the old earth. Teaching on the new earth should add meaning and purpose to every fleeting second on the old earth. This teaching should invigorate the way you view everything. It should give you new energy and faithfulness in all the mundane things you do. We got a lot, so let's get after it. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Question number one. Why do we need 
a new heaven? That's the question one of my children asked me recently after I read to them about the new heaven and the new earth. I can understand why we would need a new earth. It's been affected by the fall. It's been invaded by sin. Adam and Eve introduced fallenness in the garden. Suddenly work was no longer enjoyable. Sin looked promising. Thorns and thistles started to grow. Mankind ran from God. Animals started to growl and show their teeth. Mosquitoes began to bite and deer began to dart. It's easy to understand why one would need a new earth. It's not so conceivable to understand why we would need a new heaven. There is no sin in heaven. Heaven is where God is sitting on his throne. There is brilliance and beauty, but no bullheaded sin. You can find excellence and exuberance, but no evil. There's perfection and peace, but no pain. So why destroy heaven and make a new one? Why does it have to pass away? Why does it have to stop breathing? The answer? Heaven will not pass away. Heaven will not be destroyed. Oh, but, but, but Kyle, the text says, yes, I know. See, you only have one definition of heaven, but God has two. When you speak of heaven, you only think of the place where Christians go when they die. The Bible does refer to that place as heaven, but it also refers to the sky and outer space as heaven. Genesis chapter 6 verse 7 speaks of the birds of heaven. Now that doesn't mean there are toucans and blue jays flying around the throne of God in heaven. Heaven is the sky. James 5.18 says the heavens give rain. That's speaking of the atmosphere. Hebrews 4 said Jesus in his resurrected body passed through the heavens. Wait, he, he, what? He didn't stop in heaven where, where his father was on the throne? It's talking about the sky. And the same with verses that speak about stars falling from heaven. When verse 1 speaks about a new heaven, it's speaking about the entirety of the universe. The whole cosmos, not the heaven where God dwells. Besides, in verse 2, we hear that this new heaven comes down from heaven. The new heaven is the sky, the atmosphere, the universe. Question number two. What will happen to the old, the old heaven and the old earth? What will happen to the old heaven and the old earth? Verse 1, then I saw. Let's pause here. This is the final then I saw in the book, which has been John's code word to indicate his transition. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first or old heaven and the first earth or old earth had passed away. The old earth will pass away. Now, what does that mean? There are two possibilities. It could mean that God will totally obliterate it and create a new one. Or it could mean that God will totally renovate the existing one to make it new. A rejuvenated, transformed version of the old. It will be new either way. But will God create it ex nihilo out of nothing like he did in creation? Or will he take it down to the studs and remake it new? The word new here does not mean to create out of nothing like back in Genesis. 
It means new in quality. So there will be destruction, but not annihilation of the earth. Radical destruction and remaking of the earth. Second Peter 3 speaks of the dissolving and burning of creation. That's a purifying fire. Romans 8 speaks of the old heaven and the old earth creation waiting in eager anticipation for the day it will be liberated from the bondage of decay. Creation is groaning, waiting for renewal. So I don't think it's going to be an obliteration of the old earth, but the redemption of it. The, the new earth does not speak of God's abandonment to his creation, but of his faithfulness to his creation. It will be a new order to replace the old one marred by sin. It's not, let's just slap some paint on it and it will be good. Uh, nor is it, let's burn it completely down and throw it away. It's somewhere in between. You're not the only one that needs to be redeemed. Creation needs to be redeemed. Liberated from its bondage of decay. It contracted corruption through man's sin. Sin, since sin entered, the whole creation has been groaning. But one day, it will be singing. Nature will no longer groan for redemption. It will be redeemed and set in motion with perfection and beauty. Question number three. What metaphor does God use to describe the new heaven and the new earth? Notice verse two. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This, it's important that you understand this. It's going to help you all throughout the text. This is the new earth as a city. This is the new earth as a city. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Church, have you ever seen a city in a wedding dress? Of course you haven't. It only makes sense in apocalyptic literature. The word adorn is cosmeo, where we get our word cosmetics. The city is prepared and beautiful like the bride prepared and beautiful on her wedding day. The adjective holy should not escape you. This is a holy city. The long-anticipated heavenly Jerusalem. Cities have been a major motif in Revelation. This letter was written to seven churches in seven prominent cities in Asia Minor. For those of you that love the country... You need to see that the new earth is pictured as a city. <laughs> you don't love cities. Traffic is terrible. Crime is crazy. And people are arrogant. Cities are loud and crowded. But cities populate the Bible. And maybe the most well-known is Christ rejecting Jerusalem. Haven't we had enough of cities on earth? You say that because you've never seen a city wholly given to God. 
This is not the Jerusalem that belongs to the old world, but the Jerusalem that belongs to the new world. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice. Now, this is a phrase we've, we've found more than 20 times in the book. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself, will be with them as their God. God is moving into this city. God will live on the new earth. He will dwell with man and woman. He will, the word is actually, tabernacle with his people. He's done it before. After God's people escaped Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. These Two million newly escaped ragtag slaves were commanded to stop, set up their tents, and camp out. God then commanded them to make a tabernacle where his presence would dwell. He set his tent right in the middle of their tents. God is moving into their neighborhood. The the tabernacle was a portable structure. The readers in the seven cities that are receiving this letter They're automatically thinking back to Exodus. They know what this is pointing to. They know their Old Testaments. This is an allusion to the Old Testament tabernacle. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle. God will tabernacle with his people again. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. But this time... He will not tabernacle with his people temporarily. He will tabernacle with his people eternally. Grab hold of the emphasis of this verse. God is with man. He will dwell with them. God himself, personal pronoun to intensify, God himself will be with them. God will be with them, with them, with them, over and over again. That's you, Christian. Jerusalem is not a city of brick and mortar but a city of saints. God came down to the old earth to die for our sins. Now God comes down to the new earth to live with us, us who have no more sins. Question number four, what will be absent in heaven? There's a whole list of things that God says will be no more. In other words, they'll be absent in heaven. He says there will be no more than he lists something. It's not going to be surprising to you to discover he lists seven things. We will not cover all of them today because the list begins in this chapter but doesn't end until the next one. So I'll hit the seventh no more next week. But notice the first of the seven evils that God says will no longer exist. Verse 1b. And the sea was no more. Wait a minute, Kyle. (laughs) Are you telling me there's no sea on the new earth? Gone is the sea? There's not going to be any more dolphins? No more sea turtles? I'm fine with no more sharks, but no more clownfish? Where is Nemo? The new world is going to look a lot different if there are no seas. Over half the earth is covered in seas. No more sea? 
Is this to be understood as literal or figurative? Because everything else on the list is literal. This would be the only figurative thing. Now some bark, it says there will be no seas, so there'll be no sea. End of conversation. Stephen Davey, who is one of my mentors from a distance, is convinced, is convinced that the seas divide the nations and there will be no sea on the new earth. He does believe there will be lakes but no oceans. And he makes the argument that many of the pollutants and waste we produced eventually, we know this, end up in the ocean where it absorbs, scrubs, and breaks down the pollutants. He says, and I quote, the sun then heats the ocean causing only pure clean water vapor to float up into the sky forming clouds which bring refreshing rain back to the land a continual cycle of cleansing and renewal but in the new earth and the new heavens there will be no more pollution no more decay and no more need for cleansing a, a lot of my premillennial brothers hold to this there is a second view to which I hold and that is that God uses the word sea here symbolically to the ancient mind they would have seen the sea as a place of evil. The Leviathan comes out of the sea. One of the nasty beasts Satan called to do war with the lamb came out of the sea. The sea was a place of chaos in the Bible, turmoil, the place of trouble. It was emblematic of turbulence. The sea to us may be majestic, but to them it was dangerous and destructive. Storms could break at any point. They were suspicious of the sea. It represented the dark unknown. One of God's metaphors throughout scripture for evil is the sea. The absence of the sea would mean harmony and peace. The mind of the original reader would have easily picked up on this. I take a symbolic meaning of no more sea. G.K. Bill has five categories for sea in the book of Revelation and all of them are negative. I don't have time to walk out every reference but you can be good Bereans and, and search it out for yourself. I do not think this statement is speaking about the hydrology of the new heaven and the new earth. That's not what's going on here. I remind you, beloved, this is apocalyptic literature. No more sea means there'll be no more turmoil. Now verse 4 has the rest of the no mores. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away church there will be no more suicides no more miscarriages no more panic attacks no more depression no more tumors no more hurt lingering from an affair no more broken farm equipment no more bankruptcy children no more cavities. The new earth will be a place of no more. Sin made its devastating intrusion into the world, but God will remake it. Grief and crime will exist no longer. No more fractured relationships, loud neighbors, or arthritic knees. The sorrow and sin of the old creation does not continue to the new creation. On the new earth, God will say, enough. No more of this ever again. Pain 
is part of life on the old earth. We cannot outrun it. We cannot erase it. We cannot hide from it. We cannot shelter ourselves away from it. We cannot be vaccinated against it. It's here. But it will not be there. No more melanoma. No more multiple sclerosis. No more indescribable loneliness. No more broken hearts. No more shattered dreams. The new earth is the great reversal. Question number five. Who is the architect of this new heaven and new earth? Verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God the Father says, I wrote the architectural plans for this place. I'm making all things new. Write this down, John. Put it on paper. Scribble it on a scroll. It's going to happen just like I described. You can count on it. These words are faithful and true. I, God, who cannot lie, says it will happen. John watches this visionary experience and, and maybe he's thinking, am I hallucinating? Am I imagining this? Then in verse 5, the firm word of God comes and reassures him. Verse 6. And he, that's God on the throne, said to me, it is done. God the Father says on the new earth, it is done. God the Son said on the old earth, it is finished. It is done, completion of the work of new creation. It is finished, completion of the work of redemption. Now, verse 6, the same verse is found in our text next week, nearly word for word. So I'm going to deal with it to a greater extent then. But I do want to point this out. God is infusing his seven local churches with hope. They are people who have been suffering for the cause of Christ and harassed by local powers that be on the old earth. And God reminds them, all importance doesn't lie with the old earth. It lies with the new earth. Question number six. Who will have access to this new heaven and new earth? Verse seven. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Remember what closed out each of the seven letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3? If you conquer, you will receive the reward. This is speaking of all of those who persevere in the faith. All those who last. All those who were genuinely Christians to begin with. God is the one who demands perseverance. God is the one who enables perseverance. God says, you will be my sons and daughters. That's the language of adoption. In other words, this city is full of former orphans. They've all been adopted now. No more orphans. Question number seven. Who will be barred from this new heaven and new earth? Who doesn't make it into heaven? Verse 8. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those who do not conquer, who had a thirst for the world, they will not make it. Now you may read this list and think, uh-oh, I'm guilty of some of these things. That's true, Christian. You are. But God declared you righteous. Not because you didn't do these things, but because Christ didn't do these things. He lived perfectly in your place. Access is not reserved for those who have never committed these sins, but for those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Those without Christ, they're still in their sins. This list refers to those who choose their sin over the Savior. Cowardly. This is not speaking of natural timidity, but conforming to the world. Choosing self and safety before God. Sorcery. Very common in the seven cities where these churches were located. Occultic practices. All these people will go to anti-heaven, hell. There's no hint of people in hell genuinely repenting. Hell is not filled with people who were sorry for their sins. They are still shaking their tiny little fist in the face of God. It, it was Mark Twain. Mark Twain in his proud unbelief who said, and I quote, I'll take heaven for its climate, but hell for its company. I want to go to hell because all my friends are there. There are no friends in hell. Now let me talk to some of you Christians. For those of you who have ever seriously considered believing the teaching that all people go to heaven, universalism, you should spend some time pondering this verse. We began today with answering seven questions about the new heaven and the new earth. We will move now to taking two tours of the new heaven and the new earth. The angel takes John on a tour. First he's going to tour the outside. Then he's going to go in and he's, he's going to tour the inside. So let's begin the tour of the outside. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come. That's not an invitation. That is a command. This is the wedding day. The bride kept herself for her groom. Well, we are not real, merely spectators on this day. We are the spectacles. We have the description of a people and a place. The final home of the redeemed and the redeemed. Remember this? Come, I will show you the great prostitute. Revelation 17. Come, I will show you the bride. Revelation 21. Look at verse 10. John is speaking, and he carried me, in other words, John jumped on the tour bus, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain 
and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. He's on a mountain. Mountains were important to God's people. Israel received the law on Mount Sinai. Here we have the final eschatological city on a mountain. The brilliance of the city sparkling like crystal. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Does it not convey the idea of splendor? Now, the architectural details of the city, they begin in verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. John moves in for a closer inspection and he sees walls, gates, and foundations. The emphasis is not architectural, but theological. Why give all these architectural details? Walls, walls protected a city during a siege. Walls gave you security. Tall walls were an ideal city for ancient people. Walls gave you a sense of safety. God is telling his churches, my new earth is a place of safety. This is not a dangerous city. This is the safest city that has ever existed. The picture here is absolute safety and security. But this isn't merely describing an eternally secure city. It's describing an eternally secure people. To further relay to the readers the size of the city and the size of the walls, in verse 15 an angel comes with a golden tape measure and he begins to give the dimensions. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. 12,000 stadium. That's 1,400 miles. This city is massive. It's, it's 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high. 1,400 miles is the distance between London and Athens. New York and Houston. Chicago and California. 1,400 miles, that's the distance from Nashville to Phoenix. One city stretching that distance surrounded by walls. This dwarfs any modern city. Now, one of the things I don't like about the NASB, the, the translation, one of the things I don't like about the NASB and other translations is that they convert this 12,000 stadia to the American equivalent just like I just did. It would read, the city was 1,400 miles in length, width, and height. But to convert it into our measurement obscures the point of the text. 12,000 stadia is symbolic. 
This measurement is symbolic. Well, Kyle, I think it's literal. Okay, okay. So the city is going to reach 1,400 miles into the air? That's 1,200 miles higher than any space shuttle orbits? This city is of ridiculous proportions, preposterous size, if you understand this is literal. The, the point is symbolic. It's using 12,000 because 12 has been used in the book repeatedly. It's found 22 times in the book. Remember, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes? We're going to find out in a bit that there will be 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates, 12 pearls, 12 foundations, 12 gems. The number symbolizes immensity and perfection. The symbolic nature of 12 throughout the book tells us this is the perfect place to reside. Why is it perfect? Consider the dimensions of the city. It's built like a cube. It's a perfect cube. Length, width, height, equal. Perfect symmetry, perfect proportions. A cube, the geometric shape used in the ancient world as a shape of perfection. There's only one other cube in all the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's the Holy of Holies. 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 20 says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and it was overlaid with pure gold. 2 Chronicles 3.8 reads, And he made the most holy place. Its length corresponding to its breadth was 20 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. This city, New Jerusalem, is the final holy of holies. The new earth, the entire universe, the whole of creation has become the holy of holies. In the Old Testament tabernacle, there was a room where only the high priest could enter once a year called the Holy of Holies. He interceded for God's people there. God's presence was there. Now the entire city is the Holy of Holies. No need for the high priest, no court for women, no court for Gentiles, no outer court. God manifests himself to the whole city now. No mediating structure necessary any longer. Verse 17. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. <laughs> I like this little note. Apparently, angelic cubits are the same as human cubits. I know you've been wondering about that. The angel with the golden tape measure determines the thickness of the walls. It's 144 cubits. A cubit is the modern equivalent of the forearm, the length between the elbow to the tip of the central finger. Now that would put this wall at 216 feet thick, which isn't thick enough if you consider how high this wall goes into the air. But wait, why did you allow me to do that? Did we forget? We're in apocalyptic literature. Numbers have meanings. 144 is 12 times 12. It's not the first time in the book we've seen 144. There were 144,000 early in the book. The number is symbolic just like the first time it was used. What is the building material used for the walls? Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper. While the city, the entire city, was pure gold like clear glass. So let's summarize the walls 
Why would this heavenly city need tall walls? All of its enemies are in hell. The wall is not for defensive posture. It's demonstrating safety symbolically. So you've got walls, then you have gates. Gates give entrance into the city. All ancient cities had gates. The, the first readers are very familiar with this. This city has 12 gates. Three gates, entrances on each side. It speaks of great access. People find their way to the city from all directions. The gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. This mirrors Israel's encampment when they left Israel. Three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. <laughs> Each gate was a massive pearl. We think of pearls small enough to wear on a necklace. This, this is inconceivably large, inconceivably valuable. Jesus told a parable where a man sold everything he had just for a small pearl. A pearl this large? It boggles the mind. I would like to see the oyster that produced this pearl. <laughs> Verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day. Wait. What is the use of having big, tall walls if you leave the gates wide open? You close the gates for security, especially at night. Every city closed their gates at night. You're telling me this city doesn't close its gates at night? Verse 25, and the gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. One of the clearest ways God communicate, could communicate this to the original readers that the city is without any threat to its survival is to say that the gates never shut. Night in the ancient world was a sign of danger. That's when you were robbed, beaten up. Paul says, don't be children of the night. It's symbolic, laden language. Notice the emphasis. No. no. No, not any night there. Darkness stands for evil. Thus, evil is completely absent here. Evil will be erased forever. It's the ideal society. It fulfills Isaiah 60, verse 11. The gates shall be open continually. They shall never be shut. This is a city where you can jog with no fear. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing evil will enter it. Not that some evil is trying to get in. Remember, John is outside touring it. It's symbolic language to communicate the idealness of this city. All right, we dealt with walls, we dealt with gates, now let's deal with foundations, verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Not surprising to see all these 12s. The 12 tribes of Israel on the gates and the 12 apostles on the foundation show the unity of ancient Israel and the church. Entrance for true Israel through the gates. How are these 12 foundations decorated? Verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. The second, sapphire. It's, it's hard to identify the exactness, but they say the sapphire was a deep blue stone. The, the third, agate. 
a greenish blue color. The fourth emerald, deep green color. The fifth onyx, white stone with bands, with bands of brownish, brownish red streaks. The sixth, carnelian, that's a deep red gemstone. The seventh, chrysolite, gold-colored gemstone. The eighth, beryl, teal, teal blue color. The ninth, topaz, gold greenish color. The tenth, chrysoprase, pale green. The, the eleventh, jacinth, pale violent color. The, the twelfth, amethyst, amethyst, rich purple. The, the foundations of the city were garnished with every precious gem imaginable. Twelve foundations covered in twelve gems. It's driving home the beauty of this city. The ancients tried to press meaning into each color. I don't think it's necessary. This is stunning, gleaming, unparalleled beauty. The primary function is the accumulative effect. A way of bringing out the great value of the city. It's shouting limitless wealth and splendor. You may remember in the Old Testament, Solomon laid the foundation of the physical temple with precious stones. First Kings, we have an echo here. Kevin DeYoung says that the breastplate of the high priest had these 12 jewels in it. The, the heavenly tabernacle temple theme is continuing. It's meant to make the reader reverently and quietly back out of the Holy of Holies. They know this is the temple Ezekiel prophesied about when he was taken up on a mountain. All right, we've toured the outside of the city. Let's tour the inside, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What is missing from this city? A temple. Every city in antiquity had a temple in it. Uh, we have all the temple themes in New Jerusalem. We even have a Holy of Holies, but no temple. What made the temple the temple was the presence of God. Whether it was a portable tent or later the permanent structure. See, there is no need for a temple now. The temple is the new creation. There is no distance between us and God. There is no temple because everything is the temple. God living with us. His presence now permeates every square inch. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Now, as I said earlier with the seas, I don't think that we're, we are to take this as the astrological conditions of the new earth. That there will absolutely be no sun or moon. This is metaphorical language. There is a brilliant light emanating from the city. The light of the city is, is not a glow of a 40-watt bulb. The sun, S-O-N, lights the city. He's the everlasting lamp, the eternal sun, S-U-N. Darkness meant danger in the ancient world. We have a city with no street lights or flashlights, but they have the sinless light. What did Jesus say in John 4? I'm going to prepare a place for you. Church, this is that place. Salvation is now complete. We dealt first with answering seven questions about the new heaven and the new earth. 
Then we went to taking two tours of the new heaven and the new earth. Now we're going home with three ways the new heaven and the new earth should impact your time under the old heaven and on the old earth. Applications, if you would. The first way. The first way this text should impact you is this. It should make you long with eager anticipation for the new earth. This is your eschatological hope. God, through revelation, encouraged, encouraged his seven beleaguered churches to find hope in the new earth. He wanted them to spend time thinking about the new earth. Richard Baxter, English Puritan in the 17th century, struggled terribly with his health. It made life on the old earth miserable. He was once asked, how do you endure such horrible health issues? He responded, I meditate on the new earth for 30 minutes every day. Church, could it be you're having such a hard time on the old earth because you are neglecting meditating on the new earth every day? Do you even meditate on the new earth for one minute a day? I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. You've already been here for six hours anyway. This is another small commitment. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. To make a commitment today. Now I'm not going to ask you to keep it for the rest of your life. That's setting you up for failure. But I'm going to ask you to keep it for the next seven days. For the next seven days will you take five minutes each day and discipline yourself to think about the new earth. Put down the phone, turn off the TV, and just meditate for five minutes on what the new earth will be like. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have been longing for the new earth. When did you stop? C.S. Lewis said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism, as some modern people think, or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Spend time pondering the greatness of the earth to come. Here's what I was pondering yesterday. On the new earth, I will never ask for forgiveness again because I will never desire to sin again. My sin and my desire to sin will have disappeared. This is where everything is headed. Now, it may help you to read books on heaven and the new earth. There are so many terrible books on heaven, like Heaven for Real, about a boy who died and, and went to heaven and came back and wrote a book on it. Apparently, the book wasn't real. Or, or 90 Minutes in Heaven, about a guy who died and went to heaven for 90 minutes. People gobble up these ridiculous books on heaven. I recommend burning them and buying these. Randy Alcorn has a book simply entitled Heaven. Randy Alcorn, Heaven. We don't land at the same place on everything, but it's, it's good. Randy Alcorn has another book entitled Heaven for Kids. 
Sarah and I, we're reading this book to our kids right now. It's like our second or third time through it. It answers questions like, will there be animals in heaven? Will we have clothes in heaven? Will heaven be boring? Will we play in heaven? Another one, just to keep it simple, by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn has a book on uh, Charles Spurgeon on heaven. I know you're all going to rush out and buy it, but I like it. Um, Charles Spurgeon never preached one sermon on heaven, not a whole sermon, but he mentioned heaven a lot in many sermons, and Alcorn combines all those mentions and gives a, a running commentary of it. It may help you to meditate on it. The second way this teaching on the new heaven and the new earth should change you is this. It should embolden you to take the gospel to the nations. It should embolden you to take the gospel to the nations. Verse 22 of our text said that some from all nations are on the new earth. Some from all nations are on the new earth. That means missions will succeed. We're not sending people out on a fool's errand. This is why you should pray about being a missionary. It's a job that will succeed. It's, it's not safe, Kyle. It's not safe. The old earth isn't supposed to be safe. You won't safe. God just went through great lengths to show you you will be safe on the new earth. John Patton wanted to go reach the cannibals. One of his profs in seminary begged him to stay and not to throw away his life among the cannibals. Uh, another dear old man near death tried to deter Patton from going and he said, the cannibals, uh, you will be eaten by the cannibals. To which Patton replied, looking this man straight in the face and he said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years and soon you will be laid in the ground. There to be eaten by worms. It makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. For on that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Satan wreaks havoc on the old earth. Has Revelation not revealed that to us? He makes appearances everywhere. But Satan isn't mentioned anywhere in the last two chapters of Revelation. That's because he doesn't make appearances on the new earth. As the great long beard theologian, Cy Robertson said, he gone. <laughs> the third way. It should make you realize you're not made for heaven. You're made for the new earth. Christian, if you die, you will go to heaven. But you will not live in heaven forever. That's why some theologians call it the intermediate heaven. You will only be there until God finally puts evil down and creates a new earth. You remember that old gospel song? Uh, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Well, you could sing that about heaven too. Heaven is not your home, you're just passing through. Heaven is temporary. You're not made for heaven, you're made for the new earth. Now, if you, and a lot of people do, if you choose to refer to the new earth as heaven, then that's fine. I just wanted to emphasize the difference. Now, actually, what I have on the screen here is incorrect. So let's correct it. It should make you realize you're not made for heaven. You are made for God. I want you to long for the new heaven and the new earth 
for the right reason, for the ultimate reason. God is what makes the new earth wonderful. Not that it's a city of gold. You take God out of the new earth and it's merely a gold-plated hell. The new earth is the new earth because of God. And that, friends, is why we should long for it. Let's stand together. Father, we have been stirred, but we have no desire to be simply stirred to an emotion. Will you stir us to action? Gospel action. We love you because you first loved us.